All right, uh, this is an oral history interview with Richard Norton Smith for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in the Washington Law Offices of Alston and Byrd, and today is Wednesday, June 4th, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. Richard, let's start with um, the allure of Washington in your life uh, after <laughs> graduating from college. I'm not sure how alluring it was. It's just sort of like most things in my life. It just happened. Um, you know, really quite unforeseen, I um, uh, was an intern at the White House in the summer of 1975. I had been chairman of the Massachusetts College Republicans, um, uh, which is uh, uh, an even more exotic uh, title than it sounds, um, and um, uh, interesting enough, the national chairman was a, uh, an ambitious young Texan named Carl Rove and who um, um, I think had more than anyone else to do with the fact that I was part of the intern program. The intern program was a minor Washington scandal, um, characteristic of the city in that everyone was there because of someone they knew. Um, and uh, in the case of the person I knew was Carl Rove. So anyway, I had gone to work there and um, subsequently wrote about the experience for the Washington Post in what was intended to be a humorous piece. Not everyone saw the humor of it. Um, and the program was canceled. And I often have said that if Bill Clinton had only read the, the piece I wrote in the Washington Post and had the program not been resurrected, history might have been very different. But in any event, uh, paradoxically, that's when I first met President Ford. And uh, any other president certainly uh, Wyndham Johnson would have um, would have not only remembered but would have uh, nursed a grudge uh, for a very long time and by contrast I wound up running the Ford Library and becoming uh, very close to the to the to the family um, what was your what was your role as an intern in the White House oh god it was absolutely it was make work it was all uh, I mean it was a, a bizarre but revealing experience in many ways um, um I sat in an office in the uh, old executive office building <clears throat> in the presidential personnel office, basically uh, winnowing the equivalent of the dead letter file, um, unsolicited resumes, truckloads of unsolicited resumes uh, from would-be cabinet officers and, and the like. Um, and basically it was simply to you know, pronounce a, um, a, a death sentence on uh, these deservedly... Uh, lifeless applications before they were sent off to central file, which is the graveyard of, uh, of such things. So anyway, it was, uh, <clears throat> it was an interesting, <clears throat> interesting experience. And, um, but uh, when it ended, I went back to Boston. And the experience of writing the piece for the Post had uh, sort of Tripped a wire, and um, so I worked as a freelance writer, which means, you know, I starved, but, you know, had part-time jobs along with that. And anyway, um, I had a great time. I mean, it's very nice when you're young, you can you can do those things, and uh, you don't have much thought for the future. Um, and then in, um, gosh, the fall of... 76, 
I had a job interview with uh, Ed Brooke, the senator from Massachusetts, then in his second, and as it turned out, final term, um, and was not hired immediately. But it's an interesting thing about Brooke. Brooke had a uh, uh, an interesting way of approaching these things because I think he he mentally filed people away, and um, you might not fit into a particular slot at the time. But I think, to his credit, um, presumably you'd ma- if you'd made a favorable impression, he would um, bring you out of that. Uh, and um, that's what happened to me. I was um, I'd originally uh, uh, interviewed for a job as assistant press secretary, for which I had no qualifications. Um, and then I was hired, went to work in February of 77, ostensibly uh, in the Boston office not Washington, ostensibly as a liaison of a small business community. It was basically it was a constituent office, but very quickly turned into his speechwriter. So it was, a, it was a wonderful education. It was also an education in political adversity, which is best administered when young. Um, you're more flexible, and um, um, you, can take, you can take a few hard knocks uh, and it's it's also probably a good thing to to go through the worst in your career at the beginning of your career, and by that I mean the the book divorce and the family squabbles that attended it, and it was a messy year. And we now know what I only sensed at the time, which was that I think he was really ambivalent about running for a third term anyway, with the um, the end of the marriage, uh, which had really ceased to be a marriage uh, for a very long time. I think he was looking forward to starting a new life, a new family, as it turned out. I, I think he was probably happier out of the Senate than he had been, certainly for the for the previous few years. So um, in a curious sort of way, I think, um, you know, life turned out well for him. Um, for those of us who were young and and uh, and inexperienced at this, it um, it was a it was a wonderful education. Uh, it uh, tended to bond people. I used to say you'd, you'd open the door every day and you'd look down and you'd see your copy of the Boston Globe and if the story was above the fold, you'd close the door and go back to bed. If it was below the fold, you, you, you know, that was a good day. you go to work. Um, but anyway, I, uh, you know, made friends there for life. And um, But it was interesting because when we lost, which I basically, by that point, I predicted it, we had a very tough Republican primary challenge right-wing radio talk show host, someone who in many ways came to personify um, a lot of the, in my view, unfortunate trends, not just in the Republican Party, but in but in the political culture generally. Um, and the Panama Canal treaties were the, um, uh, the hot-button issue that year, and Brooke um, really tried to straddle it and um, ultimately voted for it and uh, paid, a, paid a heavy price. But anyway, um, I said on primary night we're going to lose in November fifty-five, forty-five, which the walk of the draw. Uh, that's what happened um, to Paul Songas. So anyway, we then had um, six, seven weeks in which to try to find a job. And I remember organizing the the staff. I said, "Look, we need to go find people who are more depressed than we are." to put all this in perspective. So at lunch, we'd go off to the Suffolk County Courthouse to a murder trial and feel at least that we weren't, you know, we weren't in the docket. So 
you know, that, that sort of excursion provided some perspective of its own. But it was interesting because quite soon, I'm trying to think whether it was November or December, I think it was probably, I think it was before the end of November that I had an appointment set up with Bob Dole, which is revealing in, it, of its, in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, that it happened that fast. But secondly, to, to learn that Dole and Brooke were good friends, obviously respected one another, uh, in some ways re-encountered some of the media image of Dole that had been projected as a result of the 76 race. Um, and I remember going in to see him. Um, uh, his um, AA at the time was Rich Armitage. And um, went in, had a, well, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes, uh, probably closer to 20, memory plays tricks. It was not a long conversation. Uh, perfectly friendly. Uh, and I remember going down to the uh, cafeteria, and within a half hour, uh, Rich Armitage summoning me back, telling me that he wanted to hire me. And uh, I remember uh, thinking, uh, Ed Brooke had many fine qualities, but um, uh, you know, he, he could make Jack Benny look generous uh, when it came to uh, public salaries. I mean, I, I used to joke, and most of the time he would laugh, but uh, it was a little close to the, close to the nerve occasionally. I mean, he would hire all these young Catholic girls just out of college who would work for a pittance. And um, I remember I was hired in February of 78 as a speechwriter at $13,500. And I think by the time I was done, I get I had gotten a raise to, I think I was like maybe sixteen five seventeen thousand, 17000 which in Brookland was munificent. So anyway, I remember, um, gosh, I think, um, I think I started in the mid-20s with Dole. So I, I thought, my God, I'm rich. What am I going to do with all this money? And um, came down, um, moved from Boston the week uh, after Christmas, moved into an apartment in southwest Washington, walked to work, and um, boy, in some ways I've, I've stayed ever since. Um, the first period that I was there physically and on the payroll ran from the beginning of January of 79 through June of 80, and um, which took us through the aborted 80 campaign. Um, at that point, I had been lucky enough to sign a contract with Simon & Schuster to write a biography of Thomas E. Dewey, and knowing only one way to do that, which was to move Lock, Stock, and Barrel to Rochester, New York for a year where the Dewey Papers were located. I did that. And, you know, I look back and I, it was very generous of him because he kept me on the payroll. I mean, it was modest. I think it was maybe it was $5,000 a month. But it was, I mean, $5,000. $5, yeah, I think it was like $5,000, you know, uh, a year. Um, which, you know, whatever, 
400 $500 a month. It paid the rent in Rochester. And I would work on projects from time to time. But it was, you know, he didn't have to do that. It was, it was and a characteristic. It was generous. And, um, and, and obviously it, uh, it cemented my loyalty. I think one thing that I've heard him say to other people when in later years the press would talk to him about me, um, he would talk about my loyalty, which uh, with me is, is an absolute. And But I also say, I mean, he made it very easy to be loyal. Um, I was grateful. Um, again, you know, when you're young and you've just lost a job because the electorate doesn't approve of your collective performance, um, and then someone gives you a job, it's it's uh, it would be churlish not to be uh, extraordinarily appreciative. But he was also someone, as I said, who made it easy to be loyal. I mean, uh, you know, you didn't have to be around him very long to uh, to develop um, a, a, a profound sense of what this man had been through in life. Uh, you didn't know it because he never obviously referred to it, but one sensed that um, uh, pain, physical pain, uh, was a constant part of his life. Um, Let me backtrack yeah. just a little bit here. Um, <clears throat> you then were speechwriter for Brooke, but stayed in, in Massachusetts. You didn't come down here. That's right. In the constituent office in Boston. So you were mainly writing statements for him when he was back home? Uh, no, no, I did all of his speechwriting. Didn't matter where he was geographically, but I think he also thought with an with an election campaign coming up, you know, it'd be useful to have someone who could be a generalist who could do both policy and politics, and 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 that's what I did. What qualities do you think in yourself uh, keyed him to say this is the man I want to be writing my words for me? And who are we talk about? Brooke. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm. Um, I suppose it's not terribly dissimilar from what I sensed later on with with Dole, um, uh, the Harvard degree uh, counted for a lot. Um, it was a kind of shorthand, and it's curious because I don't I'm not comparing Dole and Nixon, but I'm, you know for all of the cultural hay that conservatives have made over the years railing against the Eastern establishment and. Well, what Lyndon Johnson called, you know, you Harvards, and Nixon in a, in a more virulent way. Um, my sense is that both, both Brooke and Dole had a, and, and President Ford, I know, just, you know, had a kind of instinctive respect for what that credential implied. Now, obviously, you know, maybe they get you in the door, but, you know, then you're on your own. I, I, beyond that, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably not a, you know... Um, I, I know that obviously you're very green at that age, and um, and I know I made a lot of mistakes. And I remember Brooke being a very good and I and I think patient editor. Um, Senator Dole was an excellent editor, um, and each would present their own challenges. Um, Dole was accustomed, as often as not, to working without a text. I think he often felt, in some ways, hemmed in if you gave him a text to read. 
And I think there's some parallel. I don't know. I and I wouldn't explore it terribly far. Um, but I think that's uh, revealing and indicative of of, uh, of how unhandleable he was. Uh, certainly in terms of national political campaigns. There's a there's a, a stubborn independence. Uh, and also, let's face it. I you know, God, he was the pro, not me. He um, He'd been doing this a long time, and he had understandable confidence in his instincts about his ability to connect to people in, a, in, a, in an off-the-cuff conversational way. I think he probably, he may have had, you know, some, some bad experiences, I don't know, previously with, uh, with people putting words in his mouth. But um, what, what really struck me was how quickly um, and sort of, I won't say effortlessly, but uh, um, looking back, it, it, it's a surprise um, how we seem to click um, from, from the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not, again, to say that you know, he would read every word I wrote. Um, but I think um, over time, particularly, it's interesting. The big speeches, the set speeches, and, and particularly the speeches that had, I guess what I would call a particular emotional content to them. Um, you know, they were in a class by themselves. He, you find out very quickly, he doesn't do eulogies because when he does, uh, he tends to be very emotionally affected. Um, and I'm obviously jumping ahead, but I mean the probably the most memorable uh, you know, single speech was the Nixon eulogy, um, which was very emotional for me to write and obviously very difficult for him to deliver. And um, I've always believed and will believe to the day of my death Richard Nixon knew exactly what he was doing when he invited Bob Dole to, to eulogize not only himself, but Pat. People forget, when Mrs. Nixon died the previous year, there were four eulogists. One of them was Pete Wilson, then governor of California, and one was Bob Dole. Well, who were Richard Nixon's candidates for 96? They were, in order, Bob Dole and Pete Wilson. And Nixon saw this as a showcase. But he also knew, because he did very few uncalculated things in his life, he knew for a fact that, that Bob Dole would not be able to get through a eulogy uh, without displaying his emotions in a way that, although it made Dole uncomfortable, would be profoundly beneficial to him politically because it showed a side that very few people had ever seen and would humanize him in a way that nothing else could. Just as to this day, you know, when people know of my connection with the senator, they, they express amazement at his sense of humor. Well, you know, he's been funny in public for a very long time now, but people are still discovering that fact. Um, one thing that all the people around him knew 
was that the emotions are very strong and they are very close to the surface. And as a speechwriter, you're put in the position of channeling those in ways that are not supposed to produce the uh, for Nixon desired effect. But, I mean, I, I certainly can admit now that I've shared Nixon's attitude about that. Um, um, my guess is that you didn't take a speechwriting course at Harvard. No, I never did. So how did you come to your craft? It's instinctive. It's, uh, and, and by that I don't mean a, it's, it's trial and error. Um, but hopefully a willingness to learn from your mistakes as well. I mean, um, whatever talent you have has to be balanced by humility. And I, and I don't say that in a self-serving way. I mean, if you, because, let's face it, the talent uh, is raw and uh, unpolished. And, uh, uh, you know, unless you're willing to, as I say, acknowledge error and, uh, and learn from it. But um, it, it was just there. Did um, you did you feel that the voice that you developed for Senator Brooke was different from the voice that you developed for Bob Dole? Well, certainly the politics were different, and certainly the priorities in many cases were were different. I think a speechwriter, a good speechwriter, um, is more than a bit of a chameleon. And I've often thought, I don't know whether it's a you know it's a kind of chicken and egg situation. Being a biographer and being a speechwriter, I have found to be two sides of the same coin. Because in both instances, you, um, you literally have a professional out-of-body experience. Uh, you, you absolutely put yourself aside. Uh, and you climb inside someone else's shoes. And, and if you're good, inside their skin. And you inhabit their world. And um, however briefly, and because if you if you're not willing to do that, um, and it gets back to the notion of humility, it's you know it's not about you, it's not about your politics, it's not about your uh, style, uh, it's um, it's very much about subordinating those to whomever you're working for. Now the curious thing is, and I I don't know I don't hang around a lot of speechwriters. Um, Brooke and Dole and a number of other people from I've written, including Gerald Ford. Um, I mean, I've heard from a number of people, including the principals, about my alleged ability to capture their voice. Um, I was conscious of the fact, obviously trying to do that, but um, uh, writing for them in a in a in a perhaps more elevated way, using a lot of humor and some historical perspective along the way, and so on and so on, um, that would hopefully enrich their voice. So it was this curious sort of partnership, and. Um, it becomes unconscious. It's, um, 
I mean, there are so many things that other people do take for granted that I don't do. You know, I don't drive a car. And God, I was eight years old before I could tie my shoes. But writing a speech or slipping into a persona is like falling off a log. And in preparation, did you read a lot of his, uh, like when you came on staff with Dole, a lot of what he'd said before and, and so forth? Or do you just feel your ways? Yeah, it's, it's very intuitive. It's very instinctive. Of course you, of course you research subjects um, uh, to death. And again, same thing writing a biography. Um, I mean, you immerse yourself in as much material as possible. But, but it's, you know, first of all, you know, it's not rocket science. Most audiences want relatively little. They want to feel, I mean, from the political standpoint, they want to be flattered. They want to hear how important they are. They, they most of the times want to, want to know that the speaker is, uh, is in sympathy with them. But above all, they want to walk out of the room believing that they have just been given uh, a privileged glimpse of the real fill-in-the-blank. Someone they see all the time on the tube, someone they quasi-think they know, and now in this personal exposure, they want to either have that confirmed or, or be surprised or something. It's, it's, it's much more an emotional than an intellectual experience. Now, at its best, it's both. But um, Dole instinctively understands what a great many speakers don't. Um, that the most important thing, first of all, the way you establish that kind of instant intimacy is through humor. And above all, self-deprecatory humor. Um, and, you know, most of the time you've only got 20 minutes to make a permanent impression on people. So there's a great economy involved. And so did you feel like you, uh, you wrote laugh lines for, for Dole? As I mean, I put it this way. He, he didn't need anyone to write laugh lines for him, but I, you know, was perfectly comfortable uh, doing it. And uh, um, as I say, it's a good question. He could do it himself. I mean, he had the time, he could do it all. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I was perfectly comfortable writing. During those first two years when you were with him full-time, um, were you writing both for his legislative uh, utterances as well as the campaign in 80? Uh, yes, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll think that really was a learning process um, because um, it would entail, you know, sitting down with the, the experts on the staff. And... Um, you, you very quickly learned you were writing for them as much as you were writing for him, and which is great because you know again, the, the other people have a much greater depth of knowledge on many of these subjects. I mean, any good speechwriter, I suppose even a bad speechwriter, aspires to be a generalist. Um, but being comfortable with a wide range of topics is by no means the same thing as being terribly knowledgeable about any one topic. So fortunately, uh, another thing that stood out about the Dole office, and for that matter, the Brooke office, I was lucky. I had two offices in which both senators were justifiably known for hiring first-rate people. Um, uh, there was a lot of talent around Dole, 
and um, I think it served him very well. And I think it particularly, you have to remember that, that you know I was uh, there initially uh, when the Republicans were still in the minority, and um, it was all a very different world after November of 1980, um, when I think he really came into his own on many levels. But he had this core of very talented, very dedicated uh, people who were capable, as he was, of rising to the test and growing into uh, responsible authority. Um, describe the <clears throat> politics in the office uh, under Armitage and those that, that early period. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it from a number of other people. There was a, um, there was Joanne and Betty, and everyone else, and um, Joanne, uh, who, you know, on the surface, was his holdman. Uh, I mean, tough, no nonsense. Uh, occasionally brusque. Um, again, uh, it's interesting because um, and Joanne was a, was a true believer. I mean, a true, I mean, Goldwater conservative. Um, you know, her politics were several miles to the right of mine, and and I think closer to his um, in many ways than mine. Um, and I think anyone who comes in from the outside particularly, you know, Ed Brooks' speechwriter from Massachusetts and Harvard and all this, I mean, they're going to be, they're going to be on trial. And that's, you know. But that said, Joanne, uh, you know, to earn Joanne's respect, which by no means everyone did, it, it didn't happen overnight. And I think it, it ultimately happened probably when I was away, but on call. I, I think the first thing, the most, the most important attribute to her was loyalty. Uh, I mean, Bob Dole was her wife. And she usefully kept an eagle eye out for people who were users or phonies uh, or situationally loyal. And need to say it takes time to disprove those doubts. Um, and I think long before she died, I mean, I'd heard uh, my name came up in a conversation, and she said, yeah, Rick Smith, yeah, good man. Well, you know, coming from Joanne, you know, that's, uh, that's what you want in your tombstone. And I don't know how long it took, you know, to, to develop that. Um, she was irreplaceable. She was, you know, a chief of staff squared. She was the ultimate political operative. She watched his back. Um, she was the ambassador to much of the party. Uh, to much of Washington. She knew where all the bodies were buried. She no doubt had heaped a few uh, shovelfuls uh, herself. Um, but 
she was the institutional memory. And, um, you know, now, given all of those roles, it also made it inevitable that whoever had the title of administrative assistant had the title and not necessarily much more. Um, I mean, I, I think being Bob Dole's AA, particularly after 80, um, was in many ways a thankless job. Um, because as as the demands grew, as the visibility grew, as the opportunities grew, um, it really meant that Joanne's role was all the greater. Joanne really was a national figure, and it would take a very unusual kind of individual um, to comfortably accept that division of labor in the office um, and uh, it was something of a revolving door um, Betty was it's funny Betty and Joanne are, are spoken of like Lewis and Clark uh, in fact Betty and Joanne you know could have their own differences um, based upon their proximity and you know who was more loyal and who was more dedicated um, and Betty would get flustered and Betty would complain and Betty would um, uh, voice her displeasure with something he may have done or not done um, I don't think I ever heard Joanne say anything critical um, but in Betty's case it was blowing off steam because she was every bit as dedicated and she was there on weekends and you know her, her wife too was was Bob Dole. Um, and they had this wonderful kind of running gag. I mean, she blew off steam. He, you know, he cracked jokes about it. And Anyway, it was, a, from what I could tell, at least, it was a very successful relationship. But, but clearly, those two women um, were more than gatekeepers. Um, now, that said, you know, he wouldn't have... Um, I don't think he would have wanted or settled for gatekeepers. I mean, he was someone who was constantly on the prowl. You never knew when uh, you look over his shoulder and he was there. Um, you know, the inevitable what's cooking greeting. Um, but, you know, he, he was not someone, and it's, I often thought, had he ever gotten to the White House, um, he, I think, in a very unusual way among presidents, would not have fallen victim to the bubble. I suspect he would have spent as much time on Capitol Hill as he did in the White House. Um, and in the White House, he'd be, 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 be prowling around, uh, you know, trying to find uh, new information that, uh, that he could put to use. So um, the press section where I was located, was uh, the last room in the office. There was his office, and then Joanne and Betty had an outer office, and then a reception area with an AA behind that, and then one, two offices, I think, for the uh, legislative assistants and legislative correspondents, and then the what was called the press office. And there was press secretary, assistant press secretary, myself, usually an intern, 
someone working on mail and the like. Probably fairly typical of Capitol Hill setup. Now, <clears throat> that was in 79 in the first half of 80. Um, and then, of course, came the Reagan sweep uh, that fall. And um, uh, it was a very different world. <clears throat> Before we move to that different world, um, how did Sheila Burke play in as another strong woman? Right. In this landscape, you know, I didn't see that much of Sheila, um, just because there tends to be. Um, <clears throat> I think it's unintentional, but probably unavoidable, uh, a kind of gulf between the, the the personal office, the Kansas office, if you will, and and the staff folks. Um, I was certainly aware of Sheila, uh, and was uh, you know very impressed with her. I, every time I saw her, and 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 sensed that she was a very significant figure uh, on the policy side of things. Uh, didn't know a lot about her background, but it, you know it did not go unnoticed that Dole. I I got to know a lot about his mother, and. Um, uh, it was very clear, to me at least, you know, long before I worked with him on the biography, that uh, he had grown up uh, with a very strong female presence. And indeed, uh, in a way that's unusual, I think. <coughs> um, <coughs> and I don't want to sound deterministic here, but it's not difficult to trace Bob Dole's defining qualities uh, to each of his parents. I mean, he clearly got um, his father's sense of humor and the kind of comfort, comfort level with, with, with anyone. Um, his father had to have been a people person. You know, and working in that, in that green and, and, and creamery and earlier than that, the restaurant, it was very clear that uh, Doran Dole, uh, you know, was a campaigner without a campaign. Um, you know, and, and those qualities he passed on to his son. Um, Bina Dole uh, gave him her drive her perfectionism, um, a kind of never-say-die quality. Um, and it's I remember when, when talking with him about his parents and then when writing about them, it, it, it's sometimes difficult to describe his mother without inadvertently making her sound like a taskmaster. I mean, he, he jokes about it. I mean, the um, I mean, the, the spotlessness of that house in the Dust Bowl was uh, was a defining quality. And I remember, I always thought the most revealing story when I wrote about Herbert Hoover was him talking about sitting in an unheated Quaker meeting house as a boy whose feet didn't touch the floor waiting for hours for the inner light to come into his life. 
and he said much later that he was 10 years old before he realized he could do something for the joy of it without offending the Lord. And in a, in a very rough parallel, I, I will always carry with me the image of Bob Dole as a, as a boy um, imprisoned in his mother's kitchen, sitting on a stool waiting for the floor to dry. Um, and, and for the wax to, to, to congeal. Um, I mean, that's, that's just a very revealing image. But, um, and he, he, would, he would joke about it. Um, but I know for a fact, um, and again, I'm jumping ahead, but I, uh, one of the most telling experiences I ever had with him um, and something curiously that I think further bonded us was um, how he handled the death of his mother, which came, um, oh gosh, well, before that, of course, there was the death of Dr. Kalikian, and the, and the two were actually fairly close together. And um, when Dr. Kalikian died, I was no longer working full-time in the office. Now, this was the mid-'80s, I want to say 83. I was back from Rochester. The book, I think, was about to be published, living in northwest Washington uh, and still working projects, you know, for him, consulting, in effect. And I got a call from Betty saying, you got to come in. Uh, Dr. K had died. And, uh, you know, we, we got to write something. And... We could tell from the tone of her voice that it was a, it was a very tense time, and she was obviously concerned for his emotions. And, um, and I don't know whether she said he won't talk to anyone, but that that was clearly the message communicated. Um, so anyway, so I said, of course, and I grabbed a cab and came down. And to this day, I mean, I think maybe we were together maybe ten minutes. I think it was less than that. And it was, again, it was this kind of shorthand. Um, a speechwriter has a very singular kind of relationship, which, oddly enough, oftentimes, the more successful it is, the more fraught it is with unexpressed resentment on the part of the speaker. Um, because the better you make them sound, quote, you make them sound, um, the more, at some unspoken internal level, they resent the fact that you're necessary. Um, now, I never sensed that with Dole, um, uh, which is, again, I, it tells you something about him. But um, we had reached this point where he didn't have to tell me much uh, and I basically could imagine what he would want to say. And I went in the office. I went out. I sat down. I typed out something. Uh, it was one draft. Made a few corrections. Left it with Betty. Left. And by the time I got home, I said an hour later, the phone was ringing. And a member of the staff, who shall remain nameless, um, 
said, have you heard? I said, no, what do you mean? And this person proceeded to narrate what had happened. The senator had taken the statement, he'd gone over to the floor, as it happened, I think Jesse Helms was speaking. I don't know whether he was filibustering, but he was holding forth. And he uh, willingly uh, yielded the floor to his good friend from Kansas, who um, got up and started speaking. And I had concluded, uh, being a New Englander, you love Emerson and you love Frost. Well, I didn't give Emerson very often to Senator to quote, but on this occasion I had uh, a passage from Frost, a poem called Nothing Gold Can Stay. Uh, and he got to the poem and he broke down. And uh, started again and and broke down. And it's at those times when you do realize the Senate's more than a club. Uh, at those moments it's a family. And it's interesting because I think Howard Baker was you know, sort of rushed in to help fill the void. Jesse Helms showing extraordinary sensitivity for which he was not always credited. Vamped, in effect, saying, you know, I never knew Dr. Kalikian, but he sounds like an extraordinary gentleman, and I'm on and on and on. In effect, delivering his own eulogy. Uh, anyway, the senator left the floor without completing the statement. And he went out and got into the subway to come back to the office and a, and a staff person with, in my opinion, singular lack of sensitivity uh, sort of went up to him at a time when I think he really uh, wanted to be alone and I think felt embarrassed. And this person complimented him on his remarks and he said, well, you know, Rick, he writes so well. Well, first of all, I mean, that was an incredibly gracious thing to say. Um, it was also def characteristically deferring his own emotions, you know, about this. And and I think that experience, I remember then very shortly thereafter, his mother died. And I remember I sent flowers and the card read, Nothing gold can stay. And um, I, I just think it was one of those sort of bonding, you know, experiences that uh, happened. So that when a decade later, you know, the Nixon funeral came along, um, I don't think we talked at all uh, about what he wanted to say. Um, wrote it and... Uh, uh, he pretty much delivered it and uh, verbatim. Um, but I knew uh, I had been invited to Mrs. Nixon's funeral, which of course was much smaller. And that was a, that was a different kind of occasion. But I knew at, at President Nixon's funeral, when I saw them come out of the library, and I just, the look on Elizabeth's face said it all. She knew better than anyone how difficult this was going to be. And, you know, uh, it turned out to be every bit as difficult as, uh, as she imagined. But 
as I believe Nixon imagined, it also uh, turned out, at least in the short run, to be a very positive experience for, you know, there were 33 million people who watched that service. And I'm sure millions of them uh, saw a side to, to Dole that they had not imagined was there. You know, <clears throat> I'm always struck by by how Ed Muskie's career was ended because yeah. he dropped a tear. Well, and not only that, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, Muskie and in, in the famous incident outside the, uh, no, in I guess it was in Nashua where he was uh, criticizing the union leader, I think quite justifiably. Four years later, uh, people forget, but you know, Dole broke down in the wake of uh, his selection. And a couple of days later, at Ford's insistence, they had this great homecoming in Russell, Kansas. 10,000 people around the courthouse lawn. And Dole got up. And he, as he told me, he saw someone in the crowd who had donated, put money in that cigar box, you know, 30 years earlier. And um, he lost it. And... Um, you're right. The contrast between the political price that Ed Muskie paid, although I think maybe it's been exaggerated in, in, in the retelling. I mean, I, I think there are other factors at work undermining his inevitability. But nevertheless, you're absolutely right. It was, it was commented on in a way that was markedly different. And I think the reason, I don't think the culture changed that much in four years, in a curious sort of way, it was counterintuitive. I mean, Bob Dole was seen as this tough guy. Some thought a hatchet man. And so for Bob Dole to show this very human vulnerability was seen as a strength. It was seen as a positive. It was curious, for, for a liberal Democrat, it was, it was seen, particularly to, to his adversaries, as kind of confirming their worst stereotypes. So the 80 campaign for president, what was your role in that? Well, the less said about the 80 campaign, the better. I mean, I'm sure he feels that way. And um, I remember when it came time to describe it in the autobiography, uh, I think the phrase we used was something like, you know, I sometimes have trouble remembering that I even ran for president uh, in 1980. And I think probably most other people do, too. Um, you know, I, look, it made perfect sense on paper. I mean, you look around, Ed Muskie's a classic case. Ed Muskie was introduced to the country as Hubert Humphrey's running mate, and four years later had established himself as the preemptive favorite um, for that year's nomination. Uh, the vice president itself was in, in the midst of changing. Uh, vice presidential candidates were, were in fact, uh, seen as legitimate contenders for the top job. So... Uh, you know, it, it it made perfect sense. He had, um, you know, he had um, had his horizons widened considerably as a result of that uh, campaign. And in fact, the success that he would enjoy as chairman of the Finance Committee um, clearly indicated, I mean, it's a, conservatives hate to hear about anyone growing in office or out because they think it always means yeah, they're becoming more acceptable to the left, particularly this town. But the fact is, Bob Dole grew. 
in the 70s and, and more in the 80s. That said, I mean, he would not have been prepared to demonstrate the leadership and the bipartisan consensus-seeking, if you will, deal-making um, talents that, that he displayed at the Finance Committee in the 80s. Uh, that didn't happen on election night 80. That was the result of a process, in my opinion, that had unfolded probably since the day he walked in, in the, the House of Representatives 20 years earlier. But I think the 76 campaign, in a paradoxical way, advanced it considerably. In the short term, there's no doubt that he paid a price for that campaign. Um, I mean, he told me about, I think in particular, I think he, I remember Barbara Walters asking him if, in effect, he felt responsible for losing the election for Ford. And he never forgot, again, the Senate at its best, he never forgot the fact that Hubert Humphrey, on his own, called him right after the election and said, look, you're going to take some hits, but forget it. You did exactly what you were asked to do. You did everything and more that you could do for that ticket and never forget that. And he never forgot Humphrey's generosity. Um, of course, Humphrey knew where he was coming Humphrey from. knew exactly. I mean, and Humphrey, he probably was, the, the uh, subtext of that was, you're probably lucky not being <laughs> vice president. Although being Gerald Ford's vice president would have been very different from being Lyndon Johnson's. But clearly Humphrey bore scars for the rest of his life. And indeed, in talking to Walter Mondale, I mean, it became very clear. I mean, I would argue that Mondale was probably the most successful vice president of modern times. And he did it because the Humphrey experience had been so searing that he made it very clear that he wasn't going to be palmed off on the space agency or this project or that project. He was going to be a deputy president. So <clears throat> you're off in Rochester researching the Dewey Papers. Uh, That's right. Did that feel like uh, outer Siberia, or were you no? Well, but it's it's funny. I mean, it's you know, again, when you're young, it's astonishing what you can force yourself to do. I would spend all day in a library carol going through boxes of paper and making notes, and much of the night writing. That book was that book was researched and written simultaneously. It's a seven hundred plus page book. And we cut 60,000 words um, with over 1,500 footnotes. And it was done in a year and a half, which is absurd. But, you know, you write on sheer energy and love of what you're doing. So it, it, was, uh, it was a grand obsession. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't hear from, from Washington very often, which, again, made it all the more generous that, in effect, he carried me, you know, on the on the payroll. So you didn't feel like uh, your uh, reputation was slipping much because you were out of the picture for that period. No, of time. and I never worried about my reputation anyway. And uh, what was the allure of, of Dewey? Why why Dewey? Oh gosh, well, a number of things. First of all, no one had done it. I had a sense of uh, God. I don't want to say protectiveness, but. I, I had my intuition told me that there had to be so much more to this guy than the little man on the wedding cake, so much more than the forty eight election. 
and indeed, you know, I'd done my thesis at Harvard on Dewey, and uh, not a word of which survived into the book, which is a good thing. But um, there's there's a, there comes a time when you almost unknowingly turn a corner, and the very sort of almost protectiveness and certainly obsessiveness that drives you, at least me, I only know one way to write a book, it takes over your life. And uh, and at the same time, you, you realize you have obligations not only to your subject, but, but, but also to your readers. And uh, somehow you have to be obsessive and objective at the same time. And again, it's, it's, it's I, I, in a curious sort of way, the speech writing, I mean, they're two totally different styles, but the speech writing and, and researching and writing books, um, in many ways, not only sort of reflected well on each other, but each would afford a, a temporary escape from the other. So, um, you know, that was, um, I, I do remember vividly, I mean, on election night, 1980, thinking that, um, you know, this is one of the greatest nights of my life. I mean, I, I like everyone else, thought that I would never live to see, a, you know, a, a Republicans take either House or Congress. Uh, and, you know, I was not particularly enamored of Ronald Reagan. I, I wasn't hostile to Ronald Reagan. Um, I, you know, I, my politics were to the left of, of Reagan's. Um, but, you know, hopefully you're enough of a historian, even at that point, to, to realize this, this is a, potentially this is a hugely significant turning point, just as I think this election this, this fall will be. In many ways, it, it, it marks the end of the Reagan era. And um, so anyway, uh, I don't remember um, what I first heard or what I first did after the election. Uh, like everyone else, I was uh, you know, astonished that the Republicans made the gains they did, which were enormous, to take over the Senate. And, and sort of somewhere around dawn, it realized that... Uh, life was going to be very different for Bob Dole. And um, that really was the making of him, I think, uh, in many, many ways. We need to stop there and change tape. Yep. <clears throat> okay, let's pick up the narrative here. Right. Anyway. So anyway, in uh, I was in Rochester for one year, so I think June of uh, 81. Um I returned to D.C. and uh, was, was, was on the payroll, I, I guess you could call it in a consulting role, um, but also did some, some additional consulting for, I was writing some speeches for people at the White House and, and uh, had a contract at the Republican National Committee. Um, and uh, the, the project I remember, gosh, there were, couple radio shows. I remember um, now I remember specifically writing he had a kind of a point-counterpoint with Ted Kennedy. I don't know how long it lasted. You know, I, I was involved uh, I want to say for less than a year. Um, but again, it revealing because they uh, they obviously enjoyed each other. 
um, you know, this was, uh, there was a little bit of obviously not only give and take, but one-upsmanship involved. But it was very clear that, um, uh, you know, that there was a, uh, a really uh, close um, friendship between the two men. And that there's a certain amount of pose involved in um, setting each of them up as, uh, you know, the prototypical liberal and conservative. Um, and it was really only later, a couple things. Rose Kennedy and Bob Dole had the same birthday. And the senator, Senator Dole, would send her flowers. And... Um, and I know they had a number of, of, of very nice exchanges. I remember years later when I was working with him on a book of political humor. And someone, not me, had uh, submitted a draft with a number of jokes about Teddy and in particular about his weight. And it's very interesting because Dole, two things, I remember two things Dole cutting from that manuscript is a wonderful line, I think. Lyndon Johnson once talked about how ineffectual a former president was. And, and the line, the classic Johnson line was, you know, an ex-president is as impotent as a cut dog in a screwing match. Now, I think that's, a, that's classic Johnson. Dole cut it because he thought it was in bad taste. But equally revealing, he cut the Teddy weight jokes. And that told me something about not only his sense of, um, of what was appropriate, but more to the point of the real affection that he had. For, for Ted Kennedy and the sensitivity that, that he has for people. Um, but, but that was a, that was a very special uh, relationship. And, um, you know, clearly uh, they were on opposite sides of the pole, but, but in, in critical ways, they were absolutely um, like-minded in their insistence that the point of being in the Senate was not simply to issue press releases or beat your breast or declare your ideological purity. Uh, all of that went with the job. But at the end of the day, you were judged by what you accomplished, by what laws you wrote, by what honest budgets you devised. Um, you were there to get things done. And the political theater um, could be entertaining. It was certainly inescapable, but it should never be confused with why the voters sent you there. And I think if you look at Dole's career in Washington, it is fascinating on a number of levels but above all because it spans the transformation in so many ways of how people run for office, of how they get elected, of how they communicate through the media, 
uh, and of how they define their job. Uh, and obviously, the transformation of the party, the uh, uh, redefinition of conservatism. Um, and I think in many ways, he was, like his compatriot, George H.W. Bush, in other ways, so many, so, so many respects, his, his cultural opposite. But they, I think, were both fundamentally serious about government. And they, and they saw no conflict between being serious about government and being true blue conservatives. Um, it's the difference between a minimalist and a nihilist. And I think by the end of his years on Capitol Hill, much as he loved the job, much as he loved the institution, uh, it must have been extraordinarily difficult and awkward and frustrating and trying of his patience for a man whose patience was limited to pretend to take seriously the Gingriches and others of his ilk for whom political theater often took the place of legislating, for whom it was not simply a means to an end, but all too often it appeared to be an end in itself. <clears throat> it has struck me as we've gone through these interviews that we really are chronicling that major transition. Yeah. That's, that's one of the themes that emerges so clearly. Looking back with your experience in other eras, uh, has there ever been one so, so marked by strident theater and, and so forth, do you think, in the past? Or is this kind of a, a new phenomenon? Well, the Senate has always been a theatrical place. And indeed, people who wax nostalgic about the good old days are, are recalling the, the endless filibusters and the, and the, the, the melodrama uh, if you want to talk about the great triumvirate, there was no one more uh, sometimes garish in their performances than Clay and Webster and Calhoun. The, the difference was that the theater was an inseparable part of legislating, and you were playing to the galleries. What's changed are the galleries. And instead of a few hundred people uh, in the room in their Sunday finest uh, come to watch a show, um, it's the internet and cable TV and people who confuse political analysis with shouting at the top of their voices. Um, there is an ugliness about the political process. It's not debate. It's um, it's it's often name calling and posturing. And people who succeed by their ability to exploit rather than bridge differences. Um. And I've often wondered 
because he was the you know he was the man as responsible as anyone for bringing cameras into the Senate. I've often wondered if you gave him a shot of sodium pentothal, whether he really thinks, in retrospect, that it was a good thing for the Senate. I'm not talking about anything else. Um, because I think you can make a strong case to the contrary. Just one footnote here. Uh, in terms of those 19th century people whose oratory was so magnificent and whatnot, do you think they had a sense that they were talking beyond the gallery, that their words would live on and, and whatnot, or was it very much quotidian? Oh, no, no, no. They understood that everything they said would be in, uh, if not the next day's newspaper, the day after. It, you know, th they were speaking for effect. They were speaking to unseen crowds. There's no doubt about that. Um, and in that sense, there's a parallel. The, the difference is... The, the unseen crowds, even those who disagreed with what they were reading, were all, in a sense, speaking the same language. They were all part of the same process. They were all observing the same rules. Um, by the 80s, the 90s, and today, it's a much more anarchic environment blogs presume to speak with an authority which may or may not be earned and which is often more disruptive than constructive. And so you have these parallel, I won't even call them debates, and in a curious sort of way, the echo chamber, it's, it's those outside the chamber who aren't always listening to what goes on inside the chamber, if anything, it's been reversed. People inside the chamber are often reacting to what's outside the chamber. The uh, external debate, some of it on TV, some of it on the web, but um, there's a kind of role reversal in many ways. And much of it, by no means all, but much of it is trivial. Um, most of it, certainly in terms of the 24-7 news cycle, is stunningly superficial and all about black hats and white hats and oversimplifying. I mean, campaign coverage is a, is a scandal in this country. And, um, you know, obviously the Senate is not a vacuum. Um, let's pick up the thread. Um, Dole is elected leader in 85 yeah, and then becomes a bona fide candidate for president in 88. So where did you fit into that pageant? Well, gosh, I was in the, I was in the periphery. I was um, um, in the mid-80s. I was actually working two, three days a week in Pete Wilson's office uh, and doing consulting for other folks. And uh, and writing books. Uh, the Hoover book was published in 84. I immediately started work on a book on Harvard for the 350th anniversary in 86. Just made that deadline. So I was, you know, cranking out these books and all of them major research works. I mean, with lots of archival research and I've never used their assistant. So, um, you know, you'd go to a library for weeks and 
So, and in between those, and I think it's curious. Doe said to someone once, my name came up, that, um, you know, he's always got half a dozen things going at once. And and I sense that that was, a, it was not only meant as a compliment, but it was, uh, it, it, it suggested one reason for our affinity. Doe, I mean, anyone who knows anything about how Doe operated in the Senate, particularly in moments, you know, of, of real decision-making, crunch time, uh, knows that he was happiest walking from a d- debate in this room to a discussion in this room to a numbers crunching session in this room to a strategy session in this room. And, and he could keep all of those threads both separate, but he also uniquely saw how all of those threads could come together. And uh, so I think in a, in a curious sort of way, I think, uh, you know, that was one thing we had in common. He, he, uh, he thought I, I worked all the time, which is something that he finds admirable. And so, you know, we, we, had, that, we had those qualities in common. Um, the other thing that I, I will say, um, and it really came to the 496, because I'd never done it. Um, this is a town, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm patting myself on the back. I never thought to do otherwise. It just wouldn't have occurred to me. But this is a town where, you know, it's been a long time since FDR said the, the formula for the perfect staff assistant was a passion for anonymity. And uh, let's face it, uh, for a long time now, speechwriters have been public figures. I, always, I was very old-fashioned about that. I thought that that was fundamentally disloyal. Uh, and I thought, all, more than that, it was totally self-defeating. Uh, because if you have a speechwriter out front as some sort of independent commentator on what he or she has written, um, it, it, it defeats the whole purpose. Um, and it, it intrinsically diminishes the speaker. I just I don't know how you get around that. Um, so anyway, I um, always kept a very low profile, and over time, people sort of got wind of the fact that you know I was involved, and um, and I don't want to suggest there was a you know rush to to my door, but eventually, particularly by '88, you know the press would call, and I tried to be polite. And I would never talk. Um, I regarded Bob Dole and Elizabeth Dole, for whom I was writing by that time as well, as as, as friends. Um, and friends don't divulge private conversations. What were the press typi- typically after? Oh gosh, well you know there are all sorts of things. I mean, they everything from a particular speech and its genesis and. Uh, to campaign strategy or anecdotes, just, you know, character study. You know, it, was, it wasn't in the nature of uh, headline-making news, but it was exactly the kind of let your hair down, tell us what he's really like, um, which, you know, I wouldn't do under any circumstances. And it's funny because it came to a head in 96. Um... At the time, the the um, we might as well get this on the record because the story of the '96 convention uh, is revealing of of him uh, 
in ways that I think are important. A week before the convention, now he had discovered Mark Halperin, who had great success writing the the speech, the formal speech that Dole delivered uh, when he left the Senate. When he, and I, I'm being careful here, when he announced his intention to leave the Senate. And it was, I found it revealing a number of ways. First of all, that was a very, very powerful speech. Secondly, uh, he read it word for word, which told me again, you know, not only how important the occasion was, but that when the occasion was important, you know, Dole would, uh, in effect, discipline himself to... He understood that every word was on a page for effect. And so he was perfectly capable of, of not only understanding that, but playing the game. And so I think for a little while there, Mark Halperin was, you know, the answer to his prayers. And... So he started work on the acceptance speech. And a week before, it was Thursday night, a week before Dole was to deliver that speech, I got a call. I was in my office at the Gerald Ford Museum in Grand Rapids, and it was the senator. And he wanted to read me the speech. Now, back up a bit. They had just had a very unpleasant experience. I think the process was what offended them more than the result. Bob Woodward had published a book, which basically was uh, it was was pretty pretty positive in its portrait of Dole. But I think, and this is this is again, this is revealing that after all those years in Washington, he could be and she could be genuinely. Shocked. This wasn't Claude Rains shocked, you know, at Rick's place in Casablanca. This was authentic astonishment and disappointment that people that they had trusted with the leadership of the campaign served as uh, some of Woodward's leading sources. And um, Never mind that, and again, because I, I don't want to impugn their motives either. Uh, it may very well be that they intended, and indeed they succeeded, in helping craft a portrait of Dole that was more positive than might have been the case if they hadn't. Nevertheless, the thing that stuck in their craw collectively, the Doles, was that um, folks around them whom they regarded as... Um, political intimates, and in many cases, personal friends had spoken out of school. Um, So that's the backdrop to a touch of paranoia because he said, well, I'll I'll read you the speech. And I thought, to make it convenient, I said, well, Senator, you know, we got a fax machine here. I'm all alone. Let me give you the fax number. You can fax it to me and we could talk. He said, no, I'd really prefer to read it to you. And I realized at the time, vaguely, and then later on, uh, more fully, um, they were so paranoid at that point, and they were guarding this so tightly, they didn't want to take the risk 
you know, faxing it. Okay, well, that's, that's fine. The other thing that you need to know is I'd heard from her, and it was very clear. She, you know, she is a perfectionist in her own right. And she, actually, I think she was immensely beneficial to him in impressing upon him that, I mean, I think I heard the exact phrase, you know, writing a speech is only 50%. It's how you deliver it. She always understood that, and I think uh, was a very useful one-woman Greek chorus reminding him of uh, the payoff in that degree of preparation. Well, this obviously was the most important speech of his life. And they'd been working on it for months. And it put me in an awkward position because she called first and thanked me in advance for any help I could provide. And almost in the next sentence made it pretty clear that this train had left the station, that um, he had been practicing this text, he was comfortable with this text, you know, so never mind, you know, do, do you really want to be an honest critic, an honest broker, and how do you balance that against, you know, you, you don't want to inadvertently undermine his confidence, and there's a week to go. So anyway, um, he, he started reading a speech, it was a long speech, it was a long speech when he delivered it, it was longer as written. And he started talking uh, clear about the age issue. And I had I had said earlier, the way you address the age issue um, is the way you define your campaign as a reform presidency. And the Nixon goes to China analogy. You make it clear that you're a one-term president. That to do the difficult things that everyone knows needs to be done will in effect, destroy your political capital. But make that an act of sacrifice, and that dovetails with a life of sacrifice. I mean, the whole storyline comes together. You turn age to your advantage. You make the contrast with a Bill Clinton who is perceived to be a political animal, and you actually diffuse the, you know, he's been in Washington too long, by, again, using the Nixon goes to China analogy. And I still think, you know, I mean, he wouldn't have won the election. But I still think it would have given an intellectual credibility to the campaign that I'm not sure, and a coherence that it ever had. Anyway, um, he starts reading the speech. And um, there's some lovely sort of high-flown language about the advantages of, of age. And he talks about, you know, the serenity of age, and I almost gagged. I said, I couldn't resist that. I played it for laughs, but I said, now, Senator, you know, you don't want to lose, you don't want to lose your credibility in your first paragraph. I said, you are many things, but you are not serene. And he laughed. He said, yeah, maybe we have to change that word. Anyway, he went on, and as, and he, as he read, I have to say, my heart sank, because it was a polished a piece of prose but it was also so backward-looking and so steeped in what I would call Eisenhower-era nostalgia. Um, and it was apocalyptic. I mean, one thing, you know, Halperin, in my view, and I'm sure he would, you know, 
have critical things to say about about whatever I wrote. Um, there is this kind of apocalyptic quality, and um, sharpening the differences at a time when that you know may not have been the way to either accurately portray Dole, who's basically a deal maker, a consensus seeker. I say a principled pragmatist. Uh, and someone who can make this place work. And I think most people, most voters, broadly speaking, fit into those categories. And and, and the problem with bringing, and it didn't matter who it was, but someone who's a real kind of movement conservative, uh, there's, there was a fundamental clash there between Dole's instincts as someone who, who, who wants to get things done and the perceived need reinforced daily by the, the hired guns, you know, and the pollsters and the spin doctors who are telling him, you know, that's not how you get elected. Well, you know, those are the people who put read my lips, no new taxes in George Bush's mouth, uh, and the rest is history. And I think there's always a tension, which I think in some ways made Dole appear more tentative as a candidate than he might have been, between his instincts at governing and what he was being told he had to do in order to get elected. And basically, those specialists in getting you elected would disappear, win or lose. They'd perform their function. And I think, actually, I think he was too responsible. I mean, so I think he tried to, you know, I think he tried to blend the two. And um, anyway, I, and, and, and I, I can't pretend to say the moment I heard that speech, I saw the bridge to the 21st century analogy. But I remember thinking and telling Kerry Timchok, my co-conspirator, I said, this is a bridge to the past. And you know what the Clinton campaign will do. Now, it may be intellectually dishonest, but it, it was politically hugely effective because most elections in this country are about the future. And I said, if you want to subliminally reinforce the age issue, no one will have to say Bob Dole's too old to be president. People will say implicitly Bob Dole's living in the past. So you're doing Clinton's job for him, handing it to him. Now, the problem was I couldn't say that. Certainly not the first time out hearing this. So I, I you know, mumbled a few sort of non-committal. Uh, I mean, I didn't want to lie, but there was a lot of good material there, and I emphasized that. And I said, well, you know. Um, and I think he suggested that maybe I ought to talk with Kerry. Kerry was also someone who, someone he really felt had his interests at heart. Someone who didn't have an agenda of his own. And in a curious sort of way, when you're outside the office, I mean, this has been said before, you know, when you're outside the office, you're, you're Einstein, you know. When you're in the office, you may be a goat. But uh, I, I think he, you know, he looked at people, a curious attitude. I mean, I think there was, I don't want to exaggerate it, uh, 
But I think there was a real sense of pride that he felt in people who went on to to success. And, I, you know, I don't know whether it was, you know, kind of a almost paternalistic feeling, but, you know, he really, you know, and I hope he does. I hope he's taken over the years some real satisfaction in knowing, I mean, how many dull people there are in this town and elsewhere um, who bear his stamp um, and, um, you know, who hopefully make him proud. But I think Kerry was someone who, uh, about whom he felt that way. So, Kerry and I talked, I don't know if we talked that night or the next day. Uh, we were of one mind, but we were in an impossible situation. We had, we had, this is classic Dole. I mean, I have to back up now because the backdrop to this is probably the most important story I have to tell. Um, and um, it concerns a memo unsolicited that I wrote in the spring of 96 contrasting his performance in that campaign with that of 88. And if you remember, the folks around him, particularly Maury, uh, and, and again, I don't want to single her out. I mean, she, she clearly wasn't the only person uh, who was making this pitch. Um, and, and no doubt there are lots of reasons why they believed that this was, was uh, the way to go. Uh, but they were clearly trying to position him as a social conservative, um, someone who could uh, rally a, a party that was very different from what it had been in 76 when he was on the ticket. Um, and I always thought his greatest asset was his authenticity. And, and that includes what others would see as inadequacies or deficiencies. He's not slick. He's not polished. He's not naturally eloquent. Um, but he is himself. And, you know, almost always, in his own words, you know, he could communicate everything he needed to communicate. He didn't need a speechwriter. He could communicate a command of any subject um, the best of intentions, uh, the knowledge how to get something done, you know, if people were willing to work together, uh, and, and all of that. Um, so anyway, I, so I wrote this memo, and I said, basically, you were a better candidate in 88 than you are now. And I don't remember the exact language, but I mean, it was, I talked about feeding the crocodile, as Churchill said. Because, you know, you, you can, you know, you can, um, you know, throw one sacrifice after another to these folks. And obviously, you know, there's a little bit of the Rockefeller Republican in me uh, when I wrote the memo. Um, but, but they don't believe you. They don't believe what you're saying. They don't believe you believe what you're saying. And, you know, you're a, you're a Trumanesque figure. Um, you're a Midwesterner, plain-spoken, uh, unpolished in the best sense of the word, and I think the contrast, that's your greatest asset, particularly in contrast with someone like Bill Clinton. Your authenticity contrasts sharply with, with his polish. Um, and I had a whole list of issues where, you know, 
by taking the initiative and, and asking people to get real. He, he would, you know, create a rationale, not only for his candidacy, but for his presidency. And I think, I think one of the things you can never exaggerate about, about Dole, um, with him it wasn't just running for president. I mean, I think he, he was constantly thinking of, all right, how would this affect my presidency? And I, I think perhaps because he'd been through George H.W. Bush, and he'd been in those budget negotiations, and he'd seen the consequences of, of going back on this defining moment. Um, maybe it made him reluctant to, to, to give hostages to fortune by having many defining moments you know, himself. But in any event, um, Carrie and I, let's just say we were unofficially encouraged to um, review the text and make suggestions. Now, you know, the, you know, that put Halpern. I mean, I could put myself in Halpern's shoes. I mean, uh, you know, and I can understand his displeasure. Um, and I was invited at one point by someone at the senator's behest to come to San Diego. And I said, absolutely not. I said, first of all, if word gets out that I or anyone else am there, Halperin might just walk out of the room and out of the city. And that would be very unfortunate for you. And secondly, to the extent that I can be of any value, it is that I'm absolutely invisible and that I'm 2,000 miles away in a place that no one would ever look. And um, anyway, uh, Carrie and I did extensively rewrite the text. Um, and I, uh, this is only secondhand, in some cases thirdhand. I, I think there were knockdown, dragout sessions that went on out there. And um, uh, we did get some of the nostalgia out of the speech. Uh, it was more of that than anything we put in, and and we wrote the wrote a new ending. Now, <laughs> the problem was, and I'll never forget because I I said I always thought you know what what Dole needed to do the whole synergy of biography and the future is look, folks, I understand you, um, and I understand people who have it tough. That's where I came from, and without shamelessly exploiting it, you know, my experience in the hospital after the war gave me an insight and an empathy um, that's unique. Uh, and it was always implied, but they, they never, you know, so the biography stood alone. Rather than exploiting the biography in the best sense of the word, to convey a kind of empathy. I mean, the curious thing, I mean, Clinton is always talked about as the great empathizer. Um, and, 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 and the single greatest frustration of being around Dole is Dole is one of the most empathetic people I've ever known. And I'm not, I'm not denigrating Clinton's. I'm not suggesting it's a zero-sum game. But it's a side of him that very few people were allowed to see. And it seemed to me that that speech 
uh, was the perfect opportunity to do so. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the other problem with the speech was it was, as originally drafted, in my opinion, it was a Jeremiah against the 20th century. Uh, in an apocalyptic tone from someone who was profoundly morally offended by the direction that the culture had taken. Now, you know, all of that is perfectly admissible, but that's not, particularly if you have a reputation as a dark, brooding, you know, uh, not particularly sunny individual. And I just thought, oh, this is just a disaster waiting to happen. This is going to reinforce the worst of the stereotypes. So anyway, the ending, which was tacked on and felt tacked on, but nevertheless is what got quoted, I finally got a few paragraphs at the end, which were positively Reagan-esque. And the line was, he, you know, he said, you know, I'm the most optimistic man in America. And it, that was a direct outgrowth of his life experience. Now, if we could have developed that even for a few more paragraphs, as it was, it was kind of, there was this, 90% of the speech was the most pessimistic man in America. And then all of a sudden, at the peroration, you announced that I'm the most optimistic man in America. And it was not much of a transition. But anyway, um, and, and the interesting thing is the next day, the front page of the Times, the, the headline is, no, quote, the most optimistic man in America. So they picked up the line. By that time, I understood Mr. Halpern had, in fact, stalked out of San Diego. Um, angry, feeling probably betrayed. And I thought, you know, I thought to myself, you know, buddy, get real. Um, your name isn't on the ballot. And unless this you know, speech writing thing is a kind of ego trip. Um, you need to understand what every you know, good speech writer understands day one, which is it's not about you. You're a facilitator. You subordinate yourself and your ego to, you know. So I, I you know, I, I think it ended badly. But... Um, in any event, that was the backdrop. Um, I mean, in, in terms of uh, of the of the convention, the uh, the memo, obviously before that, um, was something that he kept on his desk. He told me later on he read it every day, and he sent copies of it over to the campaign, which. I, I'm telling this backwards, but you now understand why the campaign was loath to have me involved, you know, in the speech or anything else. I'm sure from their perspective, you know, along with others, you know, I was one of these outsiders, you know, these dilettantes who uh, kept getting in the way of their perfectly laid plans. Um, the memo was leaked. Michael Kramer of Time Magazine. This was about the time that Colin Powell was seriously flirting with the idea of running and indeed called a press conference to say he, he was a Republican, but he wasn't going to run for president. And in that story, Michael Kramer sort of told the story of Powell's decision 
but really segued into what it meant is Dole was the prohibitive favorite. It had been leaked to Kramer, who contacted me at the Reagan Library, and I was naive enough. I was I was astonished, and I I didn't want to talk. Uh, but Michael's a very good guy, very professional guy, um, and I got wind of the fact that I, it would be perfectly all right for me to talk. I said I'll talk, but it's off the record, and there's a whole lot of things I'm not going to talk about. So anyway, we danced around all of this. Turned out that, in my opinion, I don't know, I've never asked him. I think Dole leaked the memo. Uh, He wanted to send a signal, particularly to Republican governors, in effect saying, look, I don't believe all this stuff that that I'm saying, you know, I'm still me. Which, you know, again, works in a legislative setting behind closed doors where the entire electorate consists of 100 people, maybe 50 on your side. It doesn't work in public. You, you can't get away with it. And, um, and I will never forget the very mixed emotions I felt the following Sunday. He was a guest on This Week with David Brinkley and George Will who was married to Maury Massing, Will, uh, without disclosing that fact, brings this up and quotes from my memo and says, you know, this guy Smith says you were a better candidate in 88 than 96. Perfectly fair question, you know. I mean, I think it would have been nice if there had been some full disclosure in terms of all of this. But anyway, and Dole minimized the memo, and described it as free advice, and then of course backtracked and said, uh, "But he's a good friend of mine." I mean, it was it was so clear that you know he was trying to touch all of the bases and send send signals inarticulately. I mean, you know, it was like smoke signals, you know, that, so that everyone would understand what they were supposed to understand. Um, but it wasn't very effective, you know, and he was cornered. And, um, and I didn't take it personally. But um, it, it was interesting that he, he wanted that advice and he was as responsive to that advice. He, he didn't want to run the campaign he was running. And he has said subsequently, volunteered the observation, I thought at first it was just he was, you know, doing the political thing, sort of flattering me. But he did it two weeks ago at the press club, out of the blue. Used the example of the check from the log cabin Republicans that they noisily returned. And afterwards, he thought it was a mistake. It wasn't... Reagan-esque. I mean, as he said, you know, like Reagan. I mean, my attitude was, if you want to support me, then I'm glad to have your support. And I'm not in the business of turning away supporters. And also, I think it was the classic kind of wedge issue that he was uncomfortable with. There's a decency 
about Bob Dole, which I think is offended by some of the things that he was told he would have to do to win. So, um, in any event, I, I always felt that uh, there was a real cognitive dissonance about that campaign. It, it wasn't simply badly organized. I think in many ways it was badly organized. I don't think it was ever, I don't think the rationale for that campaign was ever spelled out, particularly to anyone's satisfaction, including his own. And he has subsequently told me he never should have run that year. His year was 88. And you agree? Yeah, I wouldn't presume to say he shouldn't have run in 96, but I do think that 88 was, was his year. Which makes all the more remarkable a loyalty that he gave to George H.W. Bush. Um, not many people who had won Iowa and were told by their pollster at the end of the week you're going to be president going into the New Hampshire primary only to have your rival's surrogate, in this case Governor Sununu, who played the heavy very well. I mean, he took relish in, 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 you know, in sticking it to the Dole campaign. Uh, ran an ad of questionable veracity which went basically unanswered and which certainly contributed to his defeat uh, in New Hampshire, which he handled badly. But I mean, given all of that, not many people would have been able to put it behind them, let alone give the man who beat them the kind of you know, unquestioning loyalty. A hell of a lot more than Newt Gingrich and the House Republicans gave to Bush. And part of that's generational. Part of it is Bob Dole was of a generation that believed if the President of the United States asked you to do something, you saluted and uh, uh, considered yourself extraordinarily fortunate. Um, during the 96-hour marathon at the end of that yeah. campaign. Started in Grand Rapids. Started at the, at the Gerald Ford Museum. Uh, they began in Grand Rapids, which was and to some degree is still heavily Republican territory. But they had, I remember, President Ford, President Bush, 41, and David Brinkley. And they were all good friends. And uh, they taped a segment for Brinkley's program in the Ford Museum. And um, he was very up. I mean, he was, um, some of it was adrenaline. Um, it's all the more, I think, extraordinary because he knew he wasn't going to win and because he was the chief cheerleader in the campaign. There had been stories, I think, well authenticated, one in particular, where in the home stretch, not at the last four days, but in the last month or so, he came into the office, and, and, and I think it was the only occasion when he, in effect, lost his cool. And, and, and I have to believe, I mean, I have to assert, totally, totally justified, because people in the campaign had been leaking, you know, in a self-serving way, classic Washington game. And, you know, he'd brought in, I mean, to be fair, he, you know, he'd, he'd hired these people. These were people for hire, 
and basically you get what you pay for. But, uh, you know, uh, the unattractive side of this city is um, a talent for survival, which is often at odds with any vestige of loyalty. Or, or say, self-loyalty tends to crowd out any other variety. And that's exactly what was happening. It happens in any losing, often, in a losing campaign. And he came in off the field, and he said, you know, you have no idea how tough it is to get these polls day after day. You're 20 points down, 25 down. And to go out there and put on a smiling face and assure everyone you're going to win. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, that's Dole at his best, and it's something that no one ever saw. Right. Well, that was one of the comments that was made at the end of that campaign, that finally they saw Dole as Dole because he wasn't speaking from under control. He was doing it from the from the heart. Yeah. And how does that work with... And the whiz, the outrage, was authentic. And that wasn't, I, I, I mean, that wasn't a line someone suggested to him. And indeed, there were people who mocked him at the time. He was, and again, this isn't Claude Rains, you know, shock, shock. Bob Dole was genuinely offended to the point of outrage by the Lincoln bedroom being turned into a fundraising device and, and some of the foreign money that was coming into the... And of course, people forget the Republicans had decided to cut themselves loose from Dole in the last two weeks of the campaign. And I'm telling you, I think it's an act of extraordinary generosity. He knew he wasn't going to win, but he was going to do everything he could handed these stories about fundraising abuses to try to narrow the gap, to raise Republican enthusiasm, and at the very least to make sure that the party did not lose Congress on his watch. And um, he, in effect, acquiesced in that strategy. I think maybe we'll end with, with this question. As a presidential historian, how would you imagine a Dole presidency to have been? It, it's a fair question, but it's an unanswerable question. Um, I think Dole, um, as I indicated earlier, I, th I think he would have been a very unconventional president. I think he would have spent... Hey, I'm sorry. They need this round. Okay. Right. Okay. Very good. All right. We have a microphone, and I guess we're at the end here. All right. 